Hey everybody, welcome to the DC3 cast. I am Brian. With me as always are Vince and Zach. We're going to have some fun tonight talking about DC Comics, specifically the DC Comics released on August 2nd, 2017. So if you haven't read them yet, pause the podcast, read your comics, and get back to us. Because um, we're going to spoil some stuff. So we're going to do things a little bit out of order this week because there's a couple of issues we wanted to talk about that are sort of big deals. And there's not a lot of news to talk about this week. So we're going to highlight these three books and we're going to go um, with, with our lives. So the first one is Batman number 28, written by Tom King, illustrated by Michael Janin. And uh, this is part three, I believe, of the War of Jokes and Riddles. And uh, I don't know about you guys, but... I'm glad we finally got to see Jim Gordon in his skivvies. I've been waiting for a long time. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, uh, we know he's a tidy whitey's guy. And um, that's about the best thing I can say about this fucking comic. Uh, Vince, you had some particularly strong feelings about this comic. So why don't, why don't you give us a, a head start here and uh, tell us what you think? Yeah. And, and because I'm a, I'm a dork that, like, tends to hijack conversations and just not stop just please like butt in anytime you guys want <laughs> please <laughs> okay please, please. i but, promise you but like this 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 might be the worst issue of batman that i've read in a long long time um everything about that like you could go page by page and and we could talk about the things that that pissed me off but can um, we do that <laughs> yeah let me Somebody else talk, and I'm pulling up the comic. Zach, go ahead. I just, uh, well, I'm going to jump ahead to the second page to my favorite line in this, in this, maybe of this whole arc so far, that I think just like it, it's a perfect encapsulation of what, what King thinks about this arc, and it's just, it's just the third, it's the third panel, the third bubble the laughing at their jokes marveling, marveling at their, at their riddles, riddles. <laughs> <laughs> oh god okay so the issue starts off with gordon uh preparing himself for separate meetings with both the riddler and the joker right and for the joker he was told to show up in nothing but underwear right and for the Riddler, he has to essentially wear like a uh, is that is that a prison jumpsuit and like a, and manacles and stuff yeah yeah and yeah, a bag over like his a, head like and, an execution mask or something yeah and yeah. he has to be led there because you know whatever but but this just first of all this just feels like the kite man issue all over again like we have to see Gordon go to the Joker and then we have to see him go to the Riddler. We have to see them like play play Gordon's participation off one another. And it just it, we're only about halfway through this arc, right? And it already feels like we're just seeing the same stuff over and over again. Yeah. And but, I, I want to note too the like the way that King writes like the Joker sent the Joker wrote like in lipstick on the back of a dead body. <laughs> and the Riddler sent a 37-page letter. And, like, that is just the most, like, lazy way to dis- to differentiate between those two characters. Uh-huh. It just seems like it's the most textbook, oh, the Riddler would make him think about it. And this whole thing of the Joker is just, he just wants to watch the world burn, man. Like, it's just, it's such a lazy way to to differentiate those two characters. 
And it's, oh, it's okay. again, it's just so overly edgy, too. Like, like, let's just pick the most extreme thing we could have them do. That's not funny. Like, it's not... <laughs> you know? Like, what... Can't you throw in a Joker prank <laughs> here and there? You know? I don't I know. I did. Yeah, I... So... Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I liked the... I like the Joker's joke on the third page. It got, it got a chuckle. I mean, that's way better than everybody in the Riddler's crew. Right. Have, like, that's do bad. their own little bit of the we didn't start the fire version of this book that's there. In yes. What you saw, get the sock on the table in half. Like, it's just this weird, like, like oh, I don't know what's going yeah, on. Yeah, I mean, that, that spread could have been somewhat effective if it hadn't been that. And like, I understand like it's difficult to tell an entire riddle on like one page, but it's just so hokey to have them all like, okay, like before he walks in, like the yeah. Riddler hands everybody their little like piece of paper. They're <laughs> rehearsing. I, yeah. I don't see, I don't believe Deathstroke would be in on that. You know, you're, you're showing, not. you're showing Deathstroke saying a part of this riddle. Well, that, no. why would he ever do that? Yeah. And I mean, that's really nitpicky, but also, well, it yes. is, yeah, it's it's nitpicky on its face, but when you think about like the way that Tom Tom King has become so style over substance that this is all style and it's not thinking about the substance. Right. Yeah, and I mean, he has like a, he has like a question mark drawn on his armor. Like that's just like you know. <laughs> I know these are all about suspension of disbelief, but well, we'll get to that later. Trust like. Oh, I'm glad you brought that up because the suspension of disbelief thing is also something that Tom King wholesale betrays in this issue. And that, <laughs> that'll be the very last thing we talk about. Okay. But, but um, uh, what, I, what I want to say about this too is I feel like there's a big difference from a storytelling perspective of like there is this war and people have chosen sides. Because oftentimes in a war, people choose sides with somebody that they don't necessarily agree with, but they think it's best for them, right? I understand why the villains of Gotham would choose sides here. However, there's a difference in choosing sides and memorizing a fucking riddle and, like, walking in such lockstep. That just, to me, that doesn't ring true to any of these characters. No, and you never, we never got a reason why that would be the case either. Why they would, why they would buy in 100%. Right, which is, I mean, I'm probably getting ahead again, but this, that's maybe the biggest problem with this issue is that it's all telling and not showing. Like, you know, like, we don't, like, we don't actually see anything that happens. It's all relayed to us in these, like, giant kind of splash pages that are supposed to convey a ton of story while we're given this, like, oral history, which can work sometimes but yeah i'm i don't think it works i don't know what do you guys think i don't think it works at all no it doesn't work in the slightest the things that work in this issue and they're few and far between are the concepts that could that could have worked out differently like the idea of batman feeling guilt over not turning himself over like when gordon says you know he they said if we turn you over it all ends like i think i think that's something that's that's a fairly common batman trope you know yeah i think that's fine it's handled poorly but that that idea is fine there's a couple of like concepts that are okay i even like the idea of selena being the one person who doesn't choose a side that's but very again, fitting that wasn't, yes 
but it wasn't handled very well. No. You know. And so what you said about that guilt, like, that's going to come up later too, but, like, it is handled in the most, in the, like, most poor way possible when you consider who Batman is as a character. So the very next, right. the very next scene is Gordon and Batman discussing this, right? And at the end, Gordon says... Uh, we until then, you and I keep them contained. Anything comes downtown, we push it back. Anything tries to go uptown, we keep it out. Let their soldiers kill each other. And you find out later in the issue that they did let, they essentially let people die for five days. And it took five days. <laughs> yeah, oh, and oh yes, over and over again. Yeah, they they have to hammer that point home. But like. Is it just me, or is that... That's not Batman. Like, that's... <laughs> like, they're, they're, like, they talk about, like, you know, on day two, 23 people died, or whatever, you know? And it's like, well... <laughs> that's not... That's not Batman. Like, they show him rescuing a kid, but, like... Isn't... Like, Batman... Batman gets in there and does more about this, right? Like, not to jump ahead to another book we're going to be talking about this week, but like in Nightwing this week, it's made very clear that Nightwing has a code that he says it out loud, like just a reminder, I don't kill anybody. And that might seem like it's a little bit over, like a little bit on the nose for a character to actually say aloud. But I feel like it's just it's an example of Tim Seeley having such a strong understanding of who Dick is that Dick is going to make sure in every situation people know the lines that he has drawn. And I feel like for Batman, that line is we don't I don't kill and I try to save everybody. And this is a betrayal of that very simple like mission statement he has. Yeah. So and and even if you so then the next uh, even if you f- fudge it a little and say well batman obviously can't save everyone if he's not there if he's not there it's not his fault he's not killing anyone you know but the way that they play it in this issue is that like they're letting this happen and gordon is saying like look we're gonna let this happen and batman more or less seems not maybe not fine with it because he clearly has a lot of like weird regret and like again this like balled up regret and tension within that he's like letting out to Selena. But like, I feel like this is such a passive Batman. Right? Like maybe they're going to say that because this is like, you know, early on in his tenure, that this, that that's why he's passive. I guess that the Batman of today would be less passive, but that's a cop out too. That's a cop out because that's like saying, Oh yeah, Superman back in the thirties or forties, Superman used to kill people all the time. You know, like, okay, but it's a different understanding of who this character is now, and you have a chance to, you know, he, he's not rewriting a story that's already been told. I mean, he is, but <laughs> that's because, you know, we've had a million Joker and Riddler stories over the years. But, so anyway, the the next scene is the the him and Selina, which you already talked about. Then there's a scene with Deathstroke and Deadshot sniping they've got sniper rifles and they're aimed at one another across buildings. And this scene I, was written by a seventh grade boy, by the it, way. Yep. Absolutely. I, the, so they, they fire a bullet at one another and they collide perfectly with one another in the middle of, you know, the alley across from these buildings. And I almost flipped my laptop over and like mm. groaned so hard at that. 
I, I will say that the composition is really good of the oh, page. Janine does nice work in this whole issue. Yeah, yeah. Like, I really do like the bang, bang. Like, that's the kind of stuff that, you know, I would expect from Janine. And, and also, like, the kind of stuff that in Omega Men that, um, like, Tom King's scripts allowed for, you know? Right. Yeah. So. Yeah, absolutely. That's a nice looking especially that panel in isolation. Right. Yeah. But like the two bullets like perfectly hitting one another in the middle. It's just that's just like a microcosm of my problems with this run like in a small series of images, you know? That's so that, corny. That's Robin Hood splitting an arrow that's already a bullseye. <laughs> yeah. Are we talking men in tights here? Of course we are. <laughs> uh <laughs> <a> chew. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, what's his father's name? A sneeze? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. of course it is. Yeah. So just, just the corny, like, like, oh my god, I, I gagged out loud at that scene. Even though, yes, Zach, you're right. That's a very, that's a very beautiful panel. Um, so then, like, but here, here's the most egregious thing of all, and this is what makes this the worst Batman story of recent memory because it takes this idea that Batman's passive player in this, it takes his one rule and it completely crushes it. It's, it skirts it. It skirts alongside it so cynically and, and it's a cheat. And, and what it is is Batman is like punching Deadshot and Deathstroke to end, you know, he says this ends today and he, you know, he's like taking his aggression out because I'm sure he's talking about the entire war between the Joker and the Riddler. Right. But what he's focusing on right now is this sniper battle, and he's basically fighting both Deathstroke and Deathstroke and Deadshot at once. And he's like beating the crap out of them, and he kind of he leaves them there all sprawled out on the ground. And you find out later that there was a a blood clot in Deadshot's skull, and due to the beating and he was all like he had like shattered cheekbone shattered orbital socket and they took him into emergency surgery to save him because the blood clot ruptured and there was going to be like a brain hemorrhage right and the doctors like through this eight hour surgery they miraculously saved him and gordon says a couple times that it was a miracle that deadshot survived so what we're saying is essentially is that Batman killed Deadshot, but Deadshot <laughs> lived per a, a medical miracle, right? Now, that is that it, so Deadshot didn't die on a technicality. That's such a skirting of Batman's one rule. That's like that's like how far can we possibly push this? He Batman killed somebody, right? Am I wrong? Batman did everything he could to kill him. Yeah. Yes. Even if he didn't die, he did everything he could to kill him. Exactly. Like, like, and that's, that's, this is only half my problem with it. We'll Mm. we'll talk about the other half in a second. But like, how do you write a story where Batman essentially kills somebody when that's his one rule and have him survive on some weird technicality. Like, this is the... I'm assuming this is the thing that Batman is harboring all this regret for. 
Oh, I don't think so at all. <laughs> well, and if that's not the case, then then my mind is even more blown at how bad this is because 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 Batman. I mean, the the point of this page is to say that Batman essentially killed somebody, right? Yeah. So I guess like so. so. So if that's not Batman's big regret that he's telling Selina about, or that this arc is built around. I'm shocked at how much the point is being missed then because um, B- Batman doesn't kill and like <laughs> getting, I don't know how to say it any other way than like, this is a technicality. Yeah. And, and then this, so the, the other problem that I have with this concept is that it takes this idea. So, so Watchmen, right? Ostensibly, Watchmen is what if superheroes were in the quote-unquote real world? What if they were real people with real, you know, physical limitations and for some of them and, like, sexual foibles and, like, they can be overweight. They can have ED, right? Mm-hmm. When they fight, they get bruised and they, you know, and that that's just one aspect of Watchmen, but that's kind of the conceit that it's a more realistic, you know... And comics have been drifting and drifting and drifting towards that ever since. And Rebirth is supposed to be this thing, ostensibly, that uh, kind of remedies that or gets away from that or, or has a little bit more hope. And that doesn't mean that every story has to be like brimming with hope or positivity. Certainly not. But when you've got a comic book that tells you that Batman got in a fist fight with Deathstroke, Deathstroke and Deadshot... And in that fist fight, he caused very real medical damage that would have caused brain damage to one of the characters to where he has to go and have surgery. This, this, is, a, this is like a – you're telling me that Superman's never punched somebody into a coma? Superman's <laughs> never ruptured somebody's skull? Like your – Tom King is asking us to uh, no longer suspend disbelief and to say that – Batman's punches have these real-life deadly consequences that somehow across the DCU, everyone until now has gotten by without. It's Looney Tunes violence everywhere else, right? There are no there are no real consequences. You know, superheroes and villains die, but it's more that's more like of a, a macro version of consequences of violence, right? Like right. when 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 Batman dies, it's some fantastical way that it happens, and it's a big thing that means something. This is one fist fight where he almost caused a brain hemorrhage in a villain, right? This is the type of thing that, you know, were superheroes around, it would be so ordinary that it's not it's not fantastical anymore. It's The grim. police do this to people. Yes, yeah, exactly. The police do this to people. This would be happening on a regular basis. And now... Tom King is stripping it away and asking us to look at this as like a real thing that, you know, the real consequences of Batman's violence. Well, Batman's over in detective comics, punching people left and right. You know, he's been doing it for 80 years. So to build like this issue around this very real act of violence that has medical consequences is like a betrayal of the basic, tenants of cape comics superhero cape comics where they're saying like look these characters are going to punch one another all the time 
Like that's just what happens. You know, there's going to the be a, yeah, there's <laughs> going to be a fist fight and and you know someone's going to get knocked down, but there's not these real consequences where you need certain. And there there have been other the stories. Justice League never issues a concussion protocol. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Like think about like <laughs> if Batman did this to Deadshot. Think about all the super-powered, super-strength characters in this universe that are constantly punching people all the time, you know? That that, that was one of going to be one of my, like, this is not a Brian nitpick. This is, like, just thinking about how other people read comics. I feel like this, this particular sequence betrays, like, six different uh, levels of comic fandom. I think the most important one is the one you talked about, the idea that this sort of... That, uh, the, the, like a real world consequence on an action that that has no real world application because we're supposed to be suspending disbelief. But I think that if you are like somebody who is, you know, to, to borrow a term from professional wrestling, hey, what's up, Paul? I, um, if if we are like to believe the kayfabe of all of this, like Deadshot and Dead and Deathstroke are supposed to be like two of the most deadly people of all time. Like they are supposed to be so unbelievably powerful and Batman is always supposed to be the everyman superhero. Yes. He's more prepared, but like he shouldn't, if you're looking at it from a purely like I am believing the fiction of this universe, this story doesn't make any sense for that reason. It doesn't make any sense for the medical reason. It doesn't make any sense that any law enforcement organization would let a five day war happen without trying to stop it. Like that just that just doesn't make any sense. There's like ten different ways that this story makes absolutely no sense, <laughs> and it does so in the most joyless, the most heavy-handed, suffocating way possible. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Zach, what have you got? Not much more than that. This <laughs> is like I mean I've stuck up for this arc a few times for you know like a few you. Mostly the art. Um, a few times where I thought this Joker was okay, but this is just really bad. <laughs> it's, was just, there a, oh, was oh. there a particular part, Zach, that bugged you more than the other parts? Um, I mean, mostly just the dialogue, um, and like the weird. It's mostly just instances where I feel like the comic is trying to be very smart. And it's just not, you know? Yeah, th- this book seems like King is waiting for people to be like, oh, wow, look at this intellectual take. And I just roll my eyes because it sounds like somebody trying to come up with an intellectual take instead of somebody trying to come up with a good take. Yeah. The old Catwoman costume, that was cool. That was nice, yeah. yeah. Very well rendered. <laughs> Very nice. Basically, basically any... costumes were good. Yeah. <laughs> basically, anything uh, related to to Janin's work on this is is good. But yeah. Uh, but yeah, I just I can't get over what a betrayal this is of the. Again, there have been realistic superhero comics before. Like there have been comics that deal with, um, the real world violent consequences of super powered fights, you know, but it's so out of place here. It It's asking you to, 
not suspend your disbelief in a way that you suspend your disbelief for literally every other comic that DC publishes, you know, on any other given week, you know? Like, I... And then when you tie when you tie that in to the, 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 the fact that Batman, you know, survived killing Deadshot on a technicality... It's such a cynical take. It's a cynical take on Batman's one rule, right? Like, the one one rule is supposed to... It's supposed to be a standard that Batman adheres to because the murder of his parents is the most tragic thing that's ever happened to him. It informs his entire character, as, as we know, as Tom King is obsessed with. So, to have Batman go there and get by on a technicality... Um... I feel like you can you can tell that story, but you can't tell it with Batman. You can't tell it with these iconic superheroes in in the their mainline runs, you know that that's supposed to matter to the canon. It's not, especially if you're not going to treat it like if he doesn't treat this as a major thing, because because me reading that sent off all sorts of red alarms, you know. And if he just blows, I don't think it ever gets mentioned again, Vince. See, oh man, if he just blows by that. And that's supposed to stand on its own. It's like, then, uh, <laughs> let's. It's better we just move on. <laughs> I'm just gonna repeat myself from here on to, out. To the other, to the other big issue. Yeah. Yeah. Unless you have anything else to add, Zach. I don't. No. Okay. Well, let's get over to Superman number twenty-eight then, written by uh, Peter Tomasi and Patrick Leeson, illustrated by Scott Godlewski. This is part two of the Kent's Teach John About America tour. And um, we get a lot of time spent in Washington, D.C. We get a cool Star Wars reference. And uh, not, not I put cool in quotation marks there, by the way. Um, and we get more dialogue boxes than should it be in any comic ever written. There is so much, like... There is so much of just, like, Tomasi copy and pasting from Wikipedia into the word bubbles of these characters. Clark, uh, Clark memorized the Wikipedia article for Pearl Harbor. and Exactly. Lois, uh, let's just trade off lines for the next uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. pages. <laughs> if it's good enough for the Riddler's Riddles, it's good enough for us. Exactly. Oh, man. So we were talking before the show about how last issue of Superman we had we had a lot of issues with with the book not going to the root cause of some of the problems that were identified, and this issue I feel like has less um, has less thematic red flags in it, uh, but has just there's just some for for three really capable comic storytellers. This is a really poorly told story. It's yeah, it doesn't even feel like a story. It feels like a it feels like a Wikipedia article and then halfway through it starts to be a story and then it takes a nosedive really into creepy creepyville. At the end. Yeah. Yeah. Um so, we're gonna talk about that, don't worry, I have a lot of thoughts about that. Yeah. So so the for the first time in these two issues, right in the beginning of this issue, they 
they actually show you some dissenting voices, right? They're, they, mm-hmm. they walk through protests on Capitol Hill, right? And this kind of ties into what Zach was saying last week, where like, oh, this is an opportunity for, for uh, Clark to exemplify some uh, American ideals that he has had as a hero throughout his, kind of like with the um, graffiti, you know, where Zach, right, you, you were yeah. talking about how, oh, this is, this is, this could be turned into a lesson about a voice for the downtrodden, right? And, yeah. and I thought this part was going to be like, ah, yes, this is where they're going to address that. Like people, people can have a voice. They can have a voice that's very strongly dissenting, you know, as long as they do it peacefully or whatever, I'm I was totally expecting that to be the way it went. And it's kind of interesting how like he talked, Superman talks a little bit about freedom of speech, except again, like he frames it in a really weird way. Like he says, freedom of speech is all about having a different opinion and not worrying about repercussions. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> The, like the, the single example that's always given about freedom of speech is that you can't yell fire in a crowded theater, and because you have to worry about the repercussions of your speech, yeah. that's like the one thing that is always said. Exactly, exactly. So then he says, like, words. What kind of repercussions? Words are powerful, John. They can change the world, and sometimes words words have gotten people killed. And so then, like, instead of a lesson about like how freedom of speech is great. But it doesn't, it's it doesn't free you from criticism or repercussion, and and that's not exactly what he's saying. He's saying there there are repercussions. It's just that your the freedom of your speech is stronger than worrying about those, which right. I don't I don't think is exactly. I don't think that's exactly what Tomasi's trying to get across there, or like if I were talking about freedom of speech, that's not exactly how I would frame it. But it's the pivot where like. In the very next panel, Clark is like, you know, so, sometimes words have gotten people killed. But just as important, <laughs> just as important uh, as words are deeds. And here are some of the best. And he's going to start talking about soldiers and war right away. And I feel like Clark pivots away from the freedom of speech speech issue in such a weird way. Like, when they say words have gotten people killed, he pivots right away to war. When there's a lot, like, this protest that's going on on Capitol Hill, it's not, it's, there's signs about climate change, there's signs about uh, coal jobs, you know. It's not about war. And I feel like the idea of freedom of speech, they, they brush by it so quickly that they don't, they're not. And they brush by it as two reporters. <laughs> right, <laughs> like, right. That's even crazier. Yeah. And they're not, they're not talking about, they don't talk about freedom of speech as in like how you bring up the real issues of a country. You know what I mean? Like once yeah. again, once again, they skirt by this idea that the U.S. could do anything wrong, you know? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. does that make sense? Absolutely. And, and then they go right into this uh, Pearl Harbor stuff, which right off the bat, I just want to say like, Again, we're not. I'm. I'm very anti-war. Okay. I'm. That's just the way it is for me. But I'm totally like people that serve our country, veterans. They deserve all the best. 
technology, healthcare, everything when they come back, you know, obviously <laughs> they're they're serving they're they're putting their life on the line, you know, whether that's right or not. I mean, I I rarely think it's <laughs> I rarely think it's right that your issue isn't with the servicemen. Right, exactly. And exactly. And so I, I highlighting that is something that Superman would do. So keep in mind that when we talk about this as a group, like we're we're not trying to be anti-veteran at all, okay? I'm anti the hokey encyclopedic way that this comic is written for sure. Um but like Lois tells a story about uh her was it her uncle, uncle her uncle yeah. Kurt that fought in Vietnam the Vietnam War and they talk about Korea a little bit I couldn't remember whether he was in Korea there or was Vietnam. a lot of Korea talk yeah yeah that was because Superman brings up that it was the Forgotten War and he's like I can't believe that they gloss over it you know thousands of people died I could, you know mm-hmm. um but anyway the the this part wasn't so offensive you know from like a the the weird like uh rejiggering of history basically like the last issue was or like but it's just so clunky it's just so dialogue filled and like just such a dry i don't know maybe you guys could say more about so that. so what this reminds me of is in i think i was in the fifth or sixth grade someone came and did a talk about like the environment and maybe it might have been it might have been like national park specific i can't remember but it definitely had to do with the environment and they brought along these dc comics that were like specially made and it was about the justice league talking about how important it was to take care of the environment and be good stewards of the environment and that's what this feels like it feels like a a comic book that like the armed forces would commission to or that you know that a government agency would commission to educate you know elementary school students about american history you know it's it's funny you mentioned that zach one of the things i thought of I don't know if you guys when I was growing up the uh, the local one of the local TV stations always played the Adventures of Superman the 50s TV show. So I have seen all those episodes like literally probably a dozen times each and there's one that was produced by the US Postal Service about buying stamps during the war. And like that's exactly what this read like to me. Yeah. Just like I, the word I, I don't mean the word propaganda in that it is espousing some brainwashing idea. I mean it in the term of like, this is promoting government action, right? Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Um, I, I did because like, again, out... it, it kind of like glosses over sort of kind of like we talked about last week, it glosses over the, the, you know, like social implications of these wars, you know, like Clark says something about the social unrest around the Vietnam war, but, that's about it. it. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't even like that's as much lip service as it pays to the potential senselessness of war. Yes. Right. You know. And I feel like again, I you know, maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like that would be something that Superman would be a little bit keyed into, you know? 
definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But I, I, yeah. I do want to point out a, a little bit of weirdness here. And so I, I'm not sure which page it's on, but the page where they're when Lois and Clark are going back and forth with, with their lines, John is putting a flag at the foot of this monument, and there's some graffiti there. It says Kilroy was here. Yeah, yeah. And, and Kilroy, has... and he, oh, he has like a he has like a big nose, right? Yeah. Uh, it looks almost like um, what's his name from Return of the Jedi, the piano player, the keyboard player. Um, uh, Slice Rebo. Max yes, Rebo. Max Rebo. Yes, exactly. Um, but uh, but Kilroy is the name of I believe the robot from the Mr. Roboto album by Styx, and I bet like Tomasi's a big Styx fan or something. I put well, that in there. No, no, no. Wait, you know what Kilroy was here is oh, right? Yeah, I just googled it. Yeah, that's a World War Two thing. Oh, is it? Yeah, it's literally oh, okay. it's literally at the World War Two memorial. Like it's that's gra- really it's there? there. Yeah, that's, that's oh, okay. I didn't realize. It. Okay, that's reality. Yeah, it's. I I don't know like the full context of that, but uh, yeah, that is absolutely a World War Two. Uh, oh okay. Uh, I I don't know graffiti's maybe not the right word, but. Right right okay yeah I was unaware of that so I'm a fool okay. <laughs> Which I, I but, but I'm sure he's a huge uh, Sticks fan as well. No, I'm fairly certain that Styx would have uh, used that because of the World War II thing. Yeah, yeah. the The album was called "Kilroy Was Here," wasn't it? I believe so. Yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to think what. Something like that. Yeah. All right, so let let's move on to the really weird part of this issue. So, yeah. Ooh, um, so I, I okay, let's. I, I'm going to talk about something in the beginning and then the end, but the middle I actually really enjoyed. So there's this scene where they're at Gettysburg, and they're walking around, and I believe it's John, but it could be Lois, are taking photos on their like iPhone of ghosts, essentially. They're looking at these scenes and taking photos, but then you see through the viewfinder that they don't see the ghosts. So why is Lois like, tree, 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 bushes, taking these photos? Well, one's a butterfly, the other's a squirrel. It's really weird. It's a very, very weird scene. Um, but then they, they stumble upon this family, and it's the family of a, a Civil War soldier who whose body was never found, but they know that he died. And every year on his birthday, they get together on the spot where the memorial for his battalion is, and they have a meal. I thought this was the closest this book got to Superman being the big blue Boy Scout. Like, this is the closest it got to that feeling of of what I like Superman to be in terms of, like, his relationship to to the country and to regular people. Like, it felt, it felt very true to me. Mm-hmm. And then... Well, well, for once, Superman, in, the, in these two issues, for once he's, like, sitting there and listening to somebody right. t- tell their story. I mean, I guess they did that a little bit with the vet from the last issue, but, like... But by and large, Superman has been a cold lecturer in these two issues and not like this warm presence that would maybe help people work through some of these things, you know? Right, right. Um, But yeah, as you said, then. So then (laughs) Superman's sleeping and he wakes up and is like, oh, and Lois is like, I knew you'd be a creep. And this was like watching a slow motion 
car crash. Yeah, as soon as it started, I'm like, they're not going to do... Oh, my God, they're doing this. (laughs) And so... Superman flies down the flies, you know, around and goes to the river and finds the bones of of this long lost relative, wraps him in an American flag, throws him on a picnic table outside of these people's vacation spot with a note that says like ran the DNA, this is your boy, bring him home. And there's like a million things that I have a problem with this. Uh number one can you imagine, like, <laughs> oh, look, someone off the flag. Let me open this up. Ah! Like, there's just, like, a visceral reaction of, of finding that. Okay, that's that's number one. My relative's bones. <laughs> exactly, yes. Right. Number two. Like, <laughs> it just seems to me like, you know, I, I know that, that people don't often connect that Clark Kent is Superman, even in the evidence that's presented to them. But, like, there's a guy, okay, so this family met Clark Kent. They call him Clark a couple of times, so obviously they remember his name. They told the stranger this story, and the next day the bones are there. Like, isn't that pretty clear who Superman <laughs> is at this point? Plus, um, plus, he's desecrating a corpse. Yeah, and he's, a flag. He, well, I think the flag. Aren't you? Cor- correct me if I'm wrong, but don't they do like? Um, don't they do some sort of services or burials or something with a flag wrapped around the... But then the flag is folded and given to the family. And yeah. they, don't, they, don't, like, they don't wrap the, the corpse in it first, you know? <laughs> we, yeah. got some good DNA, we got some good DNA on this for you. Yeah, here you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. And then, like, Superman just, like, flying over the river and immediately finding this body. And then, like... But, like... <laughs> I don't know. It's so creepy. It's so creepy. Zach, what did you think of this part? I was more... I was more weirded out by the last page that was just, like, such a weird non sequitur. (laughs) (laughs) That's the macaroni and cheese? Who wants some mac and cheese? That's a throwback to... John was excited about the motorhome because they could make mac and cheese while driving. It would have been... uh, that was totally lost on me. I was just like, "What? What is this last? Why is this here?" Oh, you're right. It's still a waste of a page. Oh, it's totally a waste of a page. It's, yeah. It, it's almost like a. It's almost like a. Um, it's almost like a gross out. Like, like who could eat after? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's almost yeah. kind of like. Leave Robin gets me hungry. <laughs> it's like the. It's like. In some ways, it actually kind of reminds me of the last page of batman as well where it just ends on this this weird uh, incomplete note yeah you know it just ends and you're just left thinking like well what did i just read i don't know i i think it would be funny if it was the halloween craft mac and cheese where they're little skeleton bones (laughs) (laughs) all we have left over is these this mac and cheese we bought last last autumn, cook it up, and then you see Clark like recoil in terror as he lifts the spoon to his mouth, and it's just skeletons. <laughs> you see him, you see him like, like smiling in 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 erotic joy that it's skeletons. Apparently, apparently he's into that. Yeah, I, I also look, I, I want to look at the actual card he leaves them for a second because there's something that I, th- I think is very funny. Well, um, I ran DNA samples, 
at the Justice League. Can you imagine him like flying up to the Watchtower and like Cyborg sitting there and he's like, uh, did Clark just walk through here with human bones? <laughs> <laughs> so here's, here's what I was going to say. I like how like, you know, he draws his own perfect logo at the bottom of a note. Now, granted, yeah. he is Superman, but you know. Oh, he's got a stamp. He's got a stamp. He carries it in his belt. So, oh yeah. Can we can we also maybe talk about how so he has he he finds the skeleton in the river. He carries it to the watchtower in, and in then space. back into and, and, and yeah, it carries it into space and then back to Earth wrapped in a flag and it's supposed to still be like <laughs> the bones are all supposed to be still aligned in human shape. Yeah. <laughs> like he should have left them a pile of powder. I, I don't. Yeah. That's not how. That's not how bones work. Yeah. <laughs> not only that, you would think that if, if they if there were bones in a riverbed for a hundred and sixty something years, like you would think that those bones probably maybe aren't complete anymore. Yeah. I, well, yeah, exactly. Like they, they don't they don't just connect together like Legos. Right. Like. <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to have anything remotely human shape in there. <laughs> it would be even better if he's like... He just a, here's the capital. <laughs> just, 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 you know, one bone that's left. Oh, my goodness. Uh, I, yeah. So creepy. I do want to say, I like the way Scott Godlewski draws Superman. I would like to see him do more with the character. Yeah, I think he's a, gr- I think he's a really fine artist. Um... For sure. He also draws Clark in a way where he, you can still tell that he's large and relatively physically, you know, that he's physically large, but he's never physically imposing. I think that's a really, that's a really uh, subtle thing that he does that I like a lot. Any other thoughts on this? Uh, I hope that this isn't like like a thing now like i hope that this isn't the point where this issue just like stops being good where this run yeah i mean yeah this run i mean yeah well i what was it the next issue parallax i can't tell you how like thrilled i was to see anything except like next issue 9-11 oh man Next issue, next issue, the more of the war of northern aggression. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. Like, if anything can win me back, it's like Green Lantern stuff. Doing some Green Lantern stuff again, like. Yeah. Yeah. But just like I don't know, this has just left such a bad taste in my mouth, and. Oh, it's gonna be like the, yeah, it's gonna be Green Lantern core like re, redo all over again. Yeah. But yeah. but the issue is gonna open, and it's gonna be like. Uh, John and Guy, and they're going to be like, well, we had to go to Syria for a special mission. (laughs) (laughs) There's going to be some horribly jingoistic stuff. (sighs) Guy will talk about his time as a a Baltimore cop, never putting someone's head down when leading into a cop car. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh, man. All right, well, that brings us to the New Gods special, number one. This is the first of the, I believe, six... Kirby one-shots we're getting this month to celebrate the King's 100th birthday at the end of the month. 
Um, we have uh, there. There are a number of of stories in this issue. The main story is called the it's called uh, Orion of New Genesis, and this is written and illustrated by Shane Davis. But there's also a a backup written illustrated by Walter Simonson, and then there is some original Kirby content reprinted in this issue as well. So I I, I think that we need to kind of talk about this in a couple different stages. Let's talk first of all about the Shane Davis story. What did you guys think of this? This um. This surprised me. I had pretty low expectations, but I thought it was a pretty, you know, decent Orion story. Yeah, I, I felt like it was. Um, I'm not a huge Shane Davis fan, but I feel like Shane Davis did a nice job of channeling some Kirbyisms. Like I feel like his Calabac looks a lot like Kirby's Calabac, mm-hmm. and just he, he he wasn't trying to like do a Kirby impression, but you definitely got a lot of that Kirby style there. Uh, what'd you think, Vince? Yeah, same. Um, I I thought it felt it felt appropriately throwbacky, like like you guys are saying. It, there was there, a lot of like Kirby trappings. The story was definitely very Kirby style, um, and and I, I I liked that it was unabashedly comic booky to like the point where like at the end of the story everything kind of ends on this very positive note. And every character sort of comes out and like is like, "Wow, Orion, you saved us!" And like, like Foragers, like, "You saved my people!" And Light Ray's like, "You're the best, Orion," you know. And like, yeah, <laughs> like I really, it, it was just a such a nice like positive uh, comic in that way. It was ju- it was just like a, a knockdown dragout fight basically, and then and then a nice positive ending. Um, it takes it takes Orion over. Th- Kind kind of like a, a character arc in one little story. Yeah. Um, yeah. P- perhaps a pretty simplistic one. Like. Oh, absolutely. I'm pretty right. sure. I'm pretty sure the final line is something like, uh, "I just had to believe in myself uh, all along," or something like that. Yeah. You know? It's something. Well, to the... I've, yeah. I mean, I've I've never read anything written by Shane Davis. I don't. I don't know if he's ever written anything. Yeah, I don't know that either. Yeah. But. Um, you know, it doesn't commit any of the like cardinal sins that I think of when I think of you know bad comic writing. No, right. no, 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 no. Yeah, just, just very like pretty, pretty simplistic. But it's not over. It's not overwritten. It's not underwritten. Um, it's, it's. Uh, I think it's structured pretty soundly. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really enjoyable comic to read. And I didn't expect that. Um, yeah, only only criticism being that it's like maybe it's a little like new gods for dummies, you know, like by, by the numbers. But but well, isn't that kind of the point of this? Exactly. There hasn't been like a new gods comic in forever, you know. And so it, I thought it was a really appropriate. And if every story is sort of structured this way, where it's like a a one-off that you don't, you literally don't need any other information and it's just begins and ends. And I feel like this will be a successful month of tribute, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. I really liked it. Um, I, 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 you know, I, I think that Shane Davis's style is, is certainly not for everybody. And I think that there are moments when he fell into maybe 
he maybe was close to the line of parody of his own style, <laughs> uh, if that makes sense. But again, I think it all worked in the context of the story. I thought it was fun, and yeah, I'm glad I read it. Well, at least yeah. he didn't he didn't like draw anybody that was like clearly Tom Cruise or anything. Like, do you remember <laughs> do you remember Superman Earth One with uh, yes J Michael Straczynski? His yeah. his his Clark was essentially de aged Tom Cruise. <laughs> Oh boy. Oh boy. Um, and then we get the uh, sort of the adventures of young Orion, written illustrated by Walter Simonson. And uh, I, I found this to be a less effective story, even though I love Simonson's art. I just felt that it, it wasn't as complete of a story. It felt unfinished. Yeah. It seemed yeah. like you needed to have maybe read his Orion run. Right. To- because there's even like, like editor note that like oh the unholy sea was first introduced in Orion Nine. Well, actually, yeah, yeah. So that would have been his run. I believe so. Yes. Yeah. So it, it felt like more of a nod to fans of his previous New Gods stuff. Right. And it even it even felt like like I've never read that, but it it seemed like it was referencing maybe things that happened in that run, like this took place before that or something, you know. Even like Seagrin as a character, yeah, like I, yeah. I, I I have a fair amount of of New Gods knowledge, and I'm not really familiar with that character. Yeah, yeah, they it seemed like introduced... you know the stuff like yeah, like that Orion would have to protect him one day or something, you know. Yeah, he, he grins and he's from the sea. What more do you need? <laughs> it's it's all right there. Sea smiles a fucking stupid name. <laughs> you wanted more smiling in our comics. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, uh, apparently, he only his first and last appearance was in New Gods number four, so maybe that's why none of us. Okay. Well, there you go. Him. Yeah. Um. However, I, I will say this. I, I will say that, like, as a short little interlude in the book, it was fine. Mm-hmm. I mean, anytime yeah. you can get some Simonson art, that's exactly. Yeah, um, and then we got some some reprints of of classic Kirby stuff, a couple of pinups and a couple of short stories, and I I think it was an interesting choice for what to reprint, and I understand that there's a, there's a limit to what they can reprint. So you're not going to have them do like you know, they're not going to package an entire issue of of Mister Miracle with this, right? So you have to find stuff that is short so that it can fit in the reprint in the back of the issue. But I felt like it was a little bit of a, uh, like, oh, we're going to reprint some Kirby stuff. Awesome. It's a story about a, uh, like, a war horse. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Cool. You know you know what I'm saying? Like, it's, uh, it's yeah. a little bit odd. I, I could appreciate it as, like, a purely, like, here, just let your eyes pour over some Kirby, classic Kirby art. And that's right. that's it. You wouldn't get much out of just reading this little excerpt from yeah. from Forever People, which is where they came from. But actually, the 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 one of the things I liked the most was the uh, page leading up to that, where it's the big picture of uh, the big drawing of Kirby. Kirby's the name. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Try, try a bag of genuine Golden Age grabbers. <laughs> that I, I believe that's taken directly from a comic. Uh, oh, I'm sure I, it is. Yeah, I think it's. Yeah, it's, I'm sure it is. Yeah. 
Yeah, uh, which is great. Our president yeah. is a golden-skinned grabber. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Oh. Dang. <laughs> um, because he grabs overall, the. Yeah, I get, get it. it right. Thanks. Okay. Yeah, the brass ring. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, we need more people like him. Um, <laughs> but then overall, this was a really nice tribute to Kirby. Like th- this felt very genuine. It felt very um, lovingly created. It didn't feel like a cash in. Which so many of these of these tribute books can feel like just just the most base, you know, cash in to make some money. This felt more carefully considered than that. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Now next week we get Howard Chaykin's Newsboy Legion. <laughs> yeah, that's gonna be fun. <laughs> I I don't know. Let, let's just say I'm not going to re- be able to review that comic without bias. We'll just, we'll just because see. you love the Newsboy Legion so much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, yeah, we'll get to that. Anyway, we're gonna take a quick, quick break here. We'll be back in a second with just with uh, some more DC podcasts. Hello, everybody. My name is Mike. And I'm Greg. And together, we are Robots from Tomorrow, a twice-weekly podcast appearing at MultiversityComics.com. Each week, we take some time to check out books and shelves on Wednesday that are worth your attention. And each month, we dissect the previous catalog. We also have long-form discussions about books we've enjoyed, like Dan Clow's Ghost World and Jack Kirby and Mike Royer's Commanding. And if that's not enough, we also do creator interviews. Some of the talks you'll find in our archives feature Mike Mignola, Leila Del Duca, Sean Martinborough, Emma Beebe, and Greg Rucka. So that's a lot of content for everybody. Please subscribe. Subscribe to Robots from Tomorrow in iTunes or Stitcher so you never miss a thing. Robots from Tomorrow has hours of comic-focused entertainment week in and week out. And now, back to your show. And we're back with a look at Bane Conquest number four, written by Chuck Dixon, illustrated by Graham Nolan. My biggest note about this issue, boys, is that I, when I was reading it, I was like, oh, so this is starting to wrap up because it's a six-issue miniseries. Nope, no, 12 no. shoots. We got a year of this shit, guys. You keep you keep forgetting that. You forgot that on like a previous episode too. I know. I I, I guess I don't want to know that. I, I don't want to remember that. So I just keep blocking it out. But uh, yeah, the, there's a lot of bane going on here, guys. Yeah. And just like to me, an unrecognizable bane. I I yeah. I forget that I'm reading about. I forget which character is bane. <laughs> and that should never happen. I, I think all three of us would agree that this is not molto bene. Not even close. In a, in a week with uh, Superman and Batman that were terrible, this is probably the worst issue of the week, actually. Because it's so it's so bad and it's so boring. Like At least those books, if they're going to be bad, they swing for the fences of hell. <laughs> That's the spirit. Uh, yeah, nothing really happens in this issue. I don't think we get a single Batman appearance in this issue, do we? No. Catwoman. Yeah. Decidedly not the same Catwoman that was in the, uh, (laughs) in Tom King's Batman Bane arc. Yeah. It's really, yeah. To be fair, you would only really know that if somebody just repeated back exactly what she was saying to her. Oh, yeah. Or if everyone was naked. (laughs) Everyone. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yep. 
All right, that brings us to another winner, Cyborg number 15, written by John Semper Jr., illustrated by Cliff Richards and Will Conrad. And uh, I got a lot of problems with this issue, but uh, Zach, I'm just going to presume you didn't even crack this open. I'm flipping through it right now (laughs) for the first time. Vince, you had some thoughts on this issue. Why don't you uh, start us off? Sure. So so I had been Wilkersoning this. Which is which by my definition is to just open it up, look at the art, see if there's anything new or that looks important, and then closing it and never thinking about it again. And I was doing that. I was just like paging through page by page, looking at the art. And at one point, like the metal men pop out, and there's the big like, you know, they do like the text box when whenever you see the characters' names for the first time, it's done in the font of the title, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's like, we're the metal men, boom. And I'm like, okay, I thought they were already in this. I thought they had, like, been in this comic. And then I kept paging through, and then, like, Bleeding Gums Murphy shows up again yeah. in, a, in, like, a dream. And I'm yep. like, wait a minute, that's that's been happening too. Did they just reprint an issue again <laughs> and think that, like, nobody would notice? So then I went back and I read from the start and I realized that no, like, yes, we've seen the Metal Men before in this and we've seen Bleeding Gums Murphy like almost every month. But it's just like, I feel like this comic is getting, like I read the issue then and I feel like it's gotten nowhere. Did So I see that this is Singularity Aftermath. Did they actually talk about the Singularity events? Not, not in any meaningful way. Like... They're just like, yeah, uh, someday this, like, um, uh, Cyborg went to a um, seminar on the singularity, and the guy was like, well, someday uh, robots are going to be running everything, and uh, that's the singularity, and and that's it. (laughs) Good night. Yeah. And I was like, great, that's (laughs) not what I wanted at all. Um, So... So can, can I share with you guys the two greatest bits of dialogue from this whole week of comics? Yeah. Okay. So, um, <laughs> so Cyborg, so this is all taking place in an alternate reality, right? This is not like his world. This is a different one. And so he meets his mom and his mom is, is very, like, his, his, you know, alt universe mom. And she's very cold to him. So this is what his, his cyborg girlfriend says to him. Hey, mister, your alternate reality mom may not be excited to see you, but even though I've been through literally turned off for a long stretch, you still definitely turned me on. Like, who wants to talk about their mom and then being turned on? Like, that's a really fucking weird thing to say. That's a great line. But it gets better. Now, the next one, I have to give John Semper credit. I think this might be intended as a joke, but I can't tell. So I'm just going to have to take it at face value. Okay. So um, this is when Bleeding Gums Murphy is talking to him. And uh, he's saying, like, you got to look around. You got to, like, see what's going on there. And he says, like, you know, um, they, uh, I know you weren't as stupid as they said you were. And so Cyborg says, who's they? He says, just pay attention to the voice you've seen. Put all the pieces of the puzzle together, Junior, and hurry up. I've put a lot of faith in you so far. You're really letting me down. I wrote a blues song about it. It goes like this. <laughs> and then he starts playing music. 
I really hope that was meant as a joke. But I somehow doubt it. Yeah. Um, so, best dialogue of the week right there. Thank you, John Sepper Jr. Um, another thing I want to mention before we move on is um, the art. I think it's like technically sufficient and technically fine, but it's so dark. Like the coloring is so dark, and it's so muddy. Like yeah, when the, when the metal a, men show yeah. up, there's they have like no personality. They're just these like dark variations of their colors and. Yeah. It's 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 really tough to to read. I usually yeah. really like Will Conrad's art too. Well, I I feel like this is the same problem I had with um, Captain Adam. Like it's just like that. Yeah. It's very technically well drafted. Yeah, it's it's technically technically it should be fine, but like the final product just seems darker and muddier than. Like I feel under all of this, there's probably some really good art. <laughs> but just doesn't I don't know it, the the book is bad enough without it also being just tough to look at yeah I don't know well Vince I wrote a blues song about that so I'm here sure we you go did, yep. my name right. is Brian do 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 I was waiting for you to sing more right, that's all I got okay. Bri- Brian doesn't rhyme with anything uh lion Dying, flying, Ryan. Paul, flying. Paul Ryan, Paul Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, that brings us to Deathstroke number twenty-two, written by Christopher Priest, illustrated by Diogenes Nevis. And this better not be the issue Zach was teasing that he didn't like. Yeah, this is the one. What? Oh. <laughs> it's not that I didn't like it. It's just that like. It, I feel like this is the first issue of Deathstroke in a while that just hasn't flat out, you know, floored me. This was just like, okay, at best. Oh, man. I couldn't disagree more, Zach. I mean, like, what happens? Like, they fight some Dr. Light constructs. Okay. He talks to Dr. Light, who I can't stand. Oh, and... but that, but see, neither can I, Zach, but I thought that conversation was so brilliant. It was. I it was it's fine. I I love I love that it's comic books are rarely this subtle but I feel like the way that Priest is handling Dr. Light they don't ever directly they don't even ever directly hint at the events of Identity Crisis but you know it's there but you know it's there and when he talks about like I lost a family for this and and I'm dead I'm I'm a being of light now He's, yeah. essentially, he's essentially, it almost comments on his role in DC Comics since he was spoiled in Identity Crisis and how, like, he's damaged goods. I guess. I don't know. I, I, I really I, liked I feel, the way that was handled. I, I just, like, never care to see Dr. Light again. I thought he met the appropriate end in Final Crisis, uh, whatever that Greg Rucka tie-in was, where the uh, Spectre just turned him to ash, and that was it. Like, Well, you're right about fact, that, for sure. In fact, like having yeah. him come back here kind of just like deep, I don't know. Like I, He's just like such an awful character post that, and like it almost kind of makes it worse to me that it it doesn't acknowledge identity crisis, but still acts like it's kind of there. And now he's just kind of like 
yeah, he's a washed up villain, but he's still just, I don't know, like he, you can't sympathize for him at all. So like, yeah, I don't really care that you lost everything. Well, and I, I, I don't think you're sympathizing for him so much as you're viewing his predicament as a, as a possible path that a villain goes down, uh, including Slade in that, you know? Like this I is... guess. I just feel like he gets off way too clean in this issue. That's interesting. Yeah, I didn't read it that way. That is interesting. Um, but I'll say I also really enjoyed seeing the team come together and, and, and seeing them kind of learn each other's skills and, and uh, powers and that. I really enjoyed the team stuff as well. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess the thing with that is that that just kind of felt like generically superhero-y to me, which is something that this series has like has never felt. I don't know. Again, like I this issue is not bad by any means. In fact, it's on the grand scale on the scale of, you know, relative comics, it's it's still very good. I love the bit where Slade pulls out the invoice and he has like their logo. <laughs> yeah. on. He just like has that printed out ready to go. But mo- best moment of the week. Yeah, it's the, great. The he's bill. Like, here's, here's the bill. The bill is like sky high. I love it. That reminded me of my favorite scene in Ghostbusters, where after they first take down that ghost in the ballroom, and Bill Murray is talking about how much it costs, and Egon is like flashing him numbers with like his hand, like just jacking the price up. Yeah. Um. Yeah, that was a great scene. Great scene. Yeah. Um, I guess this issue just like. It left a bad taste in my mouth, and also it it wasn't quite as as maybe like <sighs> unique as some of some others have been. Mm-hmm. That that's I I get that. I don't yeah. I don't agree with how you, with like I don't feel the way that you ended up feeling, but I see what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. It is the most. It's probably the most conventional issue of. Deathstroke yet, right? Yeah, and, and that's what I was going to comment on. It's funny that when the like the first eight or nine issues, a common refrain was like, "I don't really know what's happening here, but I like it." And right. now we know exactly what's happening, and uh, you know that maybe is, uh, you know, yeah, I know what you mean. Even if I disagree, I know what you mean. I, I appreciate that. Um, we gotta disagree sometimes, guys. We do have to disagree sometimes. Yeah. Uh, that brings us to uh, Green Arrow number twenty-eight, written by Ben Percy, illustrated by Juan Ferreira, and uh, this this arc is really doing it for me. Yeah, mm-hmm. more more good Lex Luthor. Yeah, a tremendously written Lex Luthor. Yeah. Oh man, even really? even just like yeah, great all around, good. Good Superman moments, good mm-hmm. Ollie moments. Yeah, it was it was furthering this idea that like Ollie's being evaluated for the Justice League without them coming out and saying it. You know. Yeah. Um, I love that Superman's flying around saving the people who are trying to commit suicide and. Yeah. Um. I loved, I, even though it was pretty wordy, I felt like it was perfectly lax for him to be doing like the surface evaluation of Ollie's character saying like, yep. Oh, you have a, you have a goatee. You're trying to look older. You're trying to 
you're trying to grow up and become a man. You're riding around on a motorcycle. That's the that's the lone man's, you know, whatever he said. Yeah. You know, just this like just by looking at him, he's inferring all this stuff about Ollie's character and then at the end he does like the eighties movie villain thing where he's like, Well, you taught me that the little people are important sometimes. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, it this was really good. This was my third favorite issue of the week. Um which I wouldn't have necessarily expected cuz cuz Green Arrow's been been good. It's been fine and this really put a bow on the hard traveling hero for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What I thought was great was how um Ollie sort of treats Clark like he's going to be a dick to him and how Clark just isn't at all. And I feel like that's a perfect encapsulation of both those characters where like Ollie is very much, he feels like he's the outsider all the time, even when he's not. And Clark is just the consummate, like trying to make everybody feel comfortable guy. You know, he was Clark was never going to really lecture him in, in that situation, but you understand why Ollie feels like he might. Um, and Juan Ferreira's art. So good. I I wanted to talk about um, there's like two pages back to back. It's the, the first one where Clark has just saved someone and then the bottom panel is him kind of like looking up and the cape kind of frames the panel. Yeah. And then the next page you have him like flying straight up and then there's like the three other panels. I felt like that sequence was just like so quintessential superman and some of the best work that ferreira's done at dc yeah and then, i know like, it's unlikely page... sorry oh. go ahead no, oh go ahead. i was just gonna say that next page i get like vibes of like of um uh oh who who was it on the vision with tom king uh walter 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 yeah some walter vibes mm-hmm. i could see that what I was going to say is, I know it's unlikely because Percy is doing Teen Titans, but this makes me want to read a Percy uh, Justice League book. Sure. Yeah. And and the thing I'll say about Juan Ferreira is, um, I've decided with this issue, I realize that I think he's a tremendous artist, but I like him more when he's allowed to draw bigger panels or like few fewer panels on a page uh-huh. there were some there were some issues earlier in this run where he was asked to draw a lot of little panels showing a sequence like a short a sequence over a short period of time through a bunch of little panels uh-huh. and i don't think his art sings as much as it does when it's big and so, like, I felt like this issue did a lot more with bigger panels. And then I appreciate his art a lot more. Like, I'm thinking of even just a few issues ago where it was all the different, um, those, like, four horsemen or whatever that were traveling around and, like, murdering people on their way yeah. to Star City. Uh, there was a lot of, like, small little panels. And I just feel like his art doesn't work as well in those when it's confined like that. I could see that, yeah. 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 It's just something that occurred to me reading this. Like, there were a lot more bigger, bolder images of, like, Superman and 
a couple of Black Canary where I just thought, like, wow, this looks really great because it's, like, big, you know? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. But, like, on the other hand, too, there are some, like, nice small touches in some of the, like, in some of the smaller panels, like some almost David Aha as cockeye stuff. Yeah, like and I... The- I think yeah. I think his structure is perfectly sound, but I feel like the art is gets a little. It does definitely get like muddier. Muddier and a little simpler than when he yeah. when he gets to stretch out a bit. Right, right. There's a bigger disparity when he goes from big panels to small panels than there is for like an artist like David Aha. For sure, yeah, yeah. But that's not. That's almost kind of like those smaller panels are the ones that were kind of making me think of like of the Walta style or aha. It's sure. it's in the bigger panels. He actually looks like himself. Yeah. I think that's a good way to put it. Yeah. I really enjoyed this issue. Um, all right. That brings us to green lanterns. Number 28 written by Sam Humphreys illustrated by Eduardo Pansica. And this is, uh, we get um, Simon and Jessica 10 billion years in the past with the first seven Green Lanterns. Um, Zach, we'll start with you. What did you think of this issue? I thought it was fine, I guess. I mean, you know, I think we're all kind of tired of superheroes fighting each other (laughs) and that sort of thing. But... I'm also enjoying this arc and I think these new characters are kind of cool. So I thought, I mean, yeah, I thought it was fine. I don't know. Vince, what about you? Yeah, I, um, I am sick of superheroes fighting and, uh, I'm going to just echo what I've said earlier about this run, uh, under Sam Humphreys. I, I think he's got a lot of ideas that are, are, that have merit. And I think these seven original lanterns, um, uniformly across the board, have cool designs, cool concepts, cool backstories, and then to bring them together in an issue where they get in a petty scuffle for basically the entirety of the issue was just a disappointing. It was a disappointing single issue read, you know. Yeah. I just was like, I couldn't wait until that was all resolved. And then when it was all resolved, there was like a page or two left. Right. And I think the idea of them needing to re- receive training from Jess and Simon is, uh, it's fine. But again, it's I can, cute. I can just imagine, yeah, I can just imagine that it's not going, it's going to be more mundane than this idea had the potential for, you know what I'm saying? Right. Just like making them all fight in this little scuffle, like oh, you've got these seven original characters that have some designs. Some of them have designs that we've, like, never seen before for lanterns. And this is what you're going to do with them? You know? I know Especially because you got, you got that cool robot lantern. You have a Kryptonian lantern. Like, there's so much you could do with those characters. Yeah. And hopefully it's coming. But I'm just, you know, unfortunately Humphreys takes these, like, really solid inventive ideas that he has and then tends to run them through very very played out sort of superhero tropes and storytelling. Very mundane. Yeah. 
Indeed. The yeah. the art was nice. I think Pansika did he does a nice job with all those different designs. Yeah, agreed. Um all right. That brings us over and I did not read this. Um just put it there right now. Harley Quinn and Batman number one. This is the digital first collection leading up to the Harley Quinn and Batman uh DC animated universe film. Uh, Vince, you read this, right? Yeah, unfortunately. Zach, did you read this? Yeah, I read this too. So talk about it, boys. Vince, uh, you want to go first? Yeah, it's... First of all, it's... It's, um... It's not a very good-looking book. It's, uh... It's, you think? Yeah, I think. Um, I think... Well... Okay, elaborate. So... So it's aiming for that Batman the Animated Series style or an approximation of it. Um, and yet, there's times where the characters' faces just don't look right. You know, the great thing about the um, the Bruce Tim designs is that they're so simple. They're just, you know, like you can tell who the character is from their profile there's not there's not a lot of lines messing everything up, and there's panels that capture that really well. And then there's other panels where like the faces go off model. There's a panel towards the end where Poison Ivy's talking, and it looks awful. Uh, I thought I'd be rescuing you from the Joker. I think yeah, but I I'm equally able to rescue from Batman and the police, and it's a really awful like overly rendered like it's it does it's there's too many there's too many of these extraneous lines that the the bruce tim style does away with you know and there's a few times that that happens to harley too it's not egregious but it's like throughout the whole thing but it's noticeable when it does happen and so i thought like it's aping that style but it's not quite accomplishing like the beauty and the simplicity of the real thing and and that bothered me throughout. Yeah, I mean, I guess like Rick Burchett, who I'm pretty sure did the has worked on like several of the animated series comics like throughout time. So like he's you know, not not you know, a stranger un- to this. Yeah, not a stranger to the tra- stranger to this style, and I, I guess maybe. Maybe because of that, like, familiarity to it, I didn't quite look at it with as close a lens. Like, you're definitely right. I'm, you know, looking at it now, it looks a lot rougher. And I, part of me wonders if maybe that's just, like, because the page is... Like, you can clearly tell that this is, like, half of a comic page mm-hmm. blown up to fit, like, the digital screen. And maybe that isn't doing it any favors. Could be. Um... Yeah, I see what you're saying. I think it still overall like captures the tone of the animated series really well in terms of art. Um, now, in terms of like the story, uh, that's another thing. I don't know. It's just so played out at this point, right? Like, yeah. you can't. You, you, they're they're not doing anything new with Harley, and you almost can't do anything new with her anymore. They're like she's just this one note thing that is happening over and over again. Her and the Joker, like. They're both so played out that I can't, you know, 
essentially this same story has been running in the backup of the Harley Quinn ongoing. They've been doing the Joker Loves Harley backup. And it's the same sort of style. It's the same, like, slightly slightly more innocent than what you're getting in the regular comic. But it's like... I don't know. It's like tr- it's like trying to go home again, and it's not working. Um, it just feel it just feels like a retread. There's there's nothing new to be found in the relationship between Joker and Harley in this form anymore. And I, at the end, it kind of moves. It kind of suggests that she's going to go with Poison Ivy, which is a a more modern take on who Harley's been in a relationship with. Um. And and that's fine, but you know, just retreading this Joker and Harley stuff over and over again, you're not getting anything out of it anymore. Yeah. Anything I agree. else to say? Oh. All right, that brings us to the first issue of the final Brian Hitch Justice League arc. <laughs> this is the issue I kind of liked. <laughs> Justice League 26, written by Brian Hitch, illustrated by uh, Fernando Pissarin. And uh, I didn't hate this issue. Yeah. it's uh, it, it does the thing that I'm a huge sucker for, which is like Elseworld alternate future things. And yeah, really, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> Vince, what do you think? Um, yeah, I, I kind of liked it too, but, uh, it did suffer, it suffered from, it suffered from, like, three pitfalls in writing, which is, like, it was a little, it was overly wordy in the way that the Hitch Justice League book has been, and yet I feel like I didn't learn enough about the 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 future young kids of the Justice League characters and even though I didn't learn enough about them what I did learn about them was done purely through dialogue the number of times that a character says to another character like well you're you're Aquaman's daughter and you feel this way about him now and this is my relationship to you and you and Aquaman repurpose cyborgs old body. And like through the dialogue, they're explaining all this history. And I understand that the story here is not, a, the, you know, if you were to really flesh out these characters, you would give them their own book. You know, this is one arc where you're trying to cram them in. And I get that, but it became really, it got to a certain point where I'm like, okay, I'm not actually retaining any of this information about <laughs> the relationship or who, what their names are. You know, I know Hunter is the Superman Wonder Woman guy, which is like, I'm sorry, Hunter's a really bad name. Like, oh, you just, just offended all of our Hunter fans. If we have any Hunters listening, I'm sorry that your parents did that. Um, <laughs> but that's a really bad name for a boy. Um, so. Don't name your babies that. Um, what about Hunter, Metal Sopranos' best friend from season one of The Sopranos? No, the only good Hunter is Hunter S. Thompson. Okay. Uh, <laughs> and even then, uh, <laughs> but uh, 
but yeah, um, but but that's the, that's the negative stuff that I have to say. I dig the concept. I dig any time there's like an alternate versions of characters or future versions of characters or or extended legacy versions of characters. I, I like it. Um, I think the designs are mostly pretty cool. Some of them are clunky, but they're clunky in like a. It's kind of funny because some of them look like. Some of them look like the clunky, uh, more homemade style, like Earth 2 costumes. Right. Yet in the future somehow, you know? Mm. And I, I really liked that sort of dichotomy. Um, so we'll see where it goes, but, um, yeah, I kind of, I kind of liked it. I, I have a theory about this arc. I, I have a theory too, Zach. I wonder if it's the same theory. I, I bet, I wouldn't be surprised if it is. Do you want to go first or? Uh, well, let me ask you, is it about when this arc was written? No. Okay. Then my theory is different. Okay. So you, you go ahead. My theory is that this isn't the future of the Rebirth timeline. It's the future of the New 52. Oh. Oh, explain that. Like, so this is somehow the future of the non, like, post-death of, you know, like, assuming that, like, Clark you know, assuming that, like, the Rebirth stuff never happened, that, like, this Superman didn't come back, that, like, Lois and Clark still stayed together. Because you mean, it just... uh, you mean, um... Diane oh, sorry, Super... Lo- yeah, Diane and Clark. It just, I don't know, like, the fact that there is, like, a Superman, Wonder Woman, analog child, and the fact that everything ended so grimdark, and that, you know, Aquaman is wearing Cyborg, and <laughs> just, like, I, I think it would be an interesting thing if it's like just with how, you know, he's already kind of teased this idea of, you know, he's like beat us over the head with rebirth, but then also talked about how there are alternate, you know, versions, how everything's constantly being remade. It's um, funny, Zach. You and I have the same theory, just approach very differently. Okay. Because my theory is that this was supposed to be the next arc of his Justice League of America book from the New 52. Uh-huh. And they loved this idea, and they were like, we'll save this for when you're on, like, for post-rebirth. Okay. Because, because I, I think, specifically because of Clark and Diana having a child together, that's such a late-period New 52 idea. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah, I'm just, I was trying to, like, rationalize why they would come back to that. And so I thought maybe... That would be a way of him, I guess, capping off his his ideas of what rebirth is, but also by contrasting it with, you know, this kind of new fifty two what if. I mean, that would be super fun. Yeah, I'm I am fully on board for that idea. Me too. I like. I, yeah, I'd like this even more if that were the case. Which means it's not gonna be <laughs> right. You know, we're not good at predictions on this show. No, we we're are not. notoriously bad at predictions. Real bad. Some Our, might but, say but, we're fools. <laughs> but but Zach's ideas are always better than the reality, anyway. That is true. <laughs> so we, we, is true. we should live. We should live in that world. Yeah. 
Agreed. Huzzah. Uh, anything else to say about this issue? Nope. It's a cool Bring idea. On Jonathan Hickman. Yep. <laughs> uh, that brings us to Nightwing number 26, beginning of a spiral arc, written by Tim Seeley, illustrated by Javi Fernandez. The band's back together. And uh, I instantly like this way better than last arc. I was going to say the exact same thing. It's much better. I, can I say I was really surprised that uh, Giz died? I thought he was just like hurt really bad at the end of last issue. But Seeley's been going for the gut in this yeah. series so far. Yeah. Um, I thought this. I thought this did the most interesting stuff with Sean in a while. Mm-hmm. I thought it. Um, I didn't see that twist coming at the end. And it felt earned. Like it, it totally felt earned, yes. Um, you know, it was great to see Dick sort of dealing with grief in his own way. I, I think this is a real... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I thought this, <laughs> this was a, a very, very solid issue. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, 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 and, and one of our criticisms of Rebirth, I think, has been the way that Huntress has been portrayed. Yes, but I feel like she came right back into this book and fit, fit like a glove, and yep, and uh, it was back to the spiral stuff. And oh yeah, there were several twists right at the end. I w- I want to say you know like, what the second hand turns out to be, yep, and then Dracul, the villain Dracul, what he turns out to be, and then yeah, just. This issue sets up dominoes and knocks them over within 20 pages, and it's really compelling the whole way through. In in a lesser creative team's hands, this would have been the midpoint of the arc. Yeah, and it would have been really boring too. Like like, it would have been like overwritten and overexplained, and this was more this was more towards that Morrison style where he starts to throw. I'm thinking of like Morrison's Batman and Robin where like all of a sudden he throws a bunch of like wacky villains or a wacky conspiracy at you and you're just on to it. There doesn't need to be a lot of explanation. Right. You know? Um Yeah. Oh, this is great. I'm 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 excited to read Nightwing again. Not that it was bad, I just didn't care. Well, maybe that does, maybe that did make that art arc bad then to me because I just didn't care about Blockbuster or anything going on with him. This book has been one of the more emotionally taxing books of Rebirth so far, and that arc felt like it had very few emotional stakes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Especially at coming after an arc that maybe had the most emotional stakes. Yeah. Yeah, well said. Zach, what else did you say about this issue? I felt like Fernandez art looked a little different than it usually does. Not worse, but just different. It had kind of like a almost vertigo slant to it, Mm -hmm. like a little bit rougher and and shadowier in some places. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, it just looked slightly different. Um, I wonder if it's a different inker. I feel like it has to be something like that. Yeah, one of those. Um, 
the co-artist changes because um, it, it yeah it just looks slightly different than um the earlier arcs a little scratchier a little shadowier but still very good yeah i'm very excited to read next issue and that brings us to our final book of the week shade the changing girl number 11 written by cecil castellucci illustrated by marley zarconi um the weirder this book gets, the more I love it. I um, I think this is maybe my favorite issue of the series so far. And I feel like they're really building to a really like a solid season one finale. Yeah. Which do we, month, do we know how many is next month? The last one, I believe each issue got tw- each book got 12 issues before the break. That's what I thought. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, I feel like we're building to some really great stuff. You know, we get the first kind of, we get a lot of talk about Rack and like teasing that we might actually be seeing him coming up, which I think would be interesting. Definitely. Um, and just really great character stuff. The bit about um, Shade being pregnant. Yeah. And just the art gags were really i loved the paper doll page yep um there were just a, a lot of like moving pieces in this issue and it really felt like it reminded me of a good tv series that's building up to a strong season finale this issue to me also flew by i felt like so much happened in it but i then it was it was over mm-hmm. like it really it was it was it was a thoroughly pleasant reading experience yeah i i agree um i i think you know in that very first arc there was a lot of emotional stuff that really got me and it made this my favorite uh young animal book for a while and then the emotional connection kind of got muddy for me when she left her home, you know? I think that happened in, like, issue seven or eight. Yeah, somewhere in there. Yeah. And now I think it found it again, and and that's what made this issue such, like, a, a nice surprise. Not, again, oh, I feel like we say this a lot, like, not that this book was bad at all. Like, it's next to Doom Patrol, it was probably still my second favorite, you know? But, um... But when she meets Honey Rich, you know, this person she's been looking for, this former uh, Hollywood starlet, you know, uh, that emotional connection immediately comes back. And I love how they, like, sort of swap consciousnesses or swap bodies. Swap bodies, yeah. And Honey Rich is about to commit elderly suicide by pill overdose (laughs) because, like, she's like so old and she's the only one around out of any of her, you know, friends and cohorts throughout the years. And like, uh, Loma saves her at the last minute. And, and then instead of like spending too much time with that, like right away, they're like, okay, we're going to go have the time of our lives. And then you're going to let me die. (laughs) And there's the, there's the scene where she, where Loma looks at her and says, I promise. I, I promise will. I'll kill you. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> Which is just perfect for so many reasons. 
and then they get like all dolled up and they go to this taping of a TV show or something like that. It was TV show or soap opera or you know something, and uh, and it's just fun and like breezy, but also there's this like real heart to it, you know, because it's been building to this meeting for several issues now, and I feel like the payoff is really fun. Um, the uh, the why are there so few holes panel? Oh <laughs> yeah. god, yeah, it's like so instantly memeable, like yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's you want to explain that one a little more, Zach. <laughs> Just say no. I don't know. I don't know if I can. The like, the like, body switching that already is like. So so yeah. So we have Honey and Shade's body and Shade and Honey's body and and. No, honey, no. Honey, Honey and Young Shade is telling. Honey in Megan's body. Well, okay. I call her Shade because that's what she. Yeah. Loma Shade in Megan's body. You're you're right. Fine. I left out another layer of body switching. Yeah. (laughs) But much body switching leading to a sex ed. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I love it. Yeah, this was a really, really good issue. Nah, I love these young animal books. They're all good. Yeah. And and Marley Zarconi's art is awesome. Um. I I love I don't know what the word for it is but it's like pop it's like pop art you know like every it is. every every panel is its own little pop art installation um, yeah yeah the coloring is you know flat but still very expressive and and evocative yeah and Becky Cloonan's cover is also really beautiful her covers have been great yeah. She's one of the best. She's one of Multiversity's top five cover artists. I would know because I wrote the blurb on her. <laughs> there you go. Well, folks, that does it for this installment of the DC Three Cast. Uh, thank you for listening. As always, we really, truly do appreciate it, and uh, we would love to hear from you. So tweet at us and uh, tell us what you want us to talk about. Give us your hot takes. We uh, we we had a really fun suggestion on Twitter today. Uh, Vince, you have your Twitter open? Yeah. So we can give the shout-out to the gentleman who tweeted at us with the suggestion that Dan Jurgens should be the editor of the Superman family line because that would get him off writing action and get rid of Eddie Berganza. Yeah, Ken, Ken Robinson tweeted at us. Idea, make Jurgens the Superman line editor, get to keep his lore slash plots but not his writing, plus gets rid of E.B., the famous E.B. we all know and love. Yeah. Um, yes, uh, I think that's a fine idea, Ken Robinson. Yeah, so uh, thank you for reaching out, Ken. Cheers, we, uh, cheers to you, Mr. Robinson. Yes. Uh, Jesus does love you more than you will know. Um, Brian, are you trying to seduce me? <laughs> plastics. <laughs> <laughs> Awkward look on a bus. <laughs> trying to get all my... Uh, <laughs> all um, taking you to an erotic film in the middle of New York City. A swimming pool. <laughs> uh, uh, Mr. Feeney is in that yes. movie. Yes, he is. Uh, Simon and Garfunkel soundtrack. All right, let's, let's move on. So you could, you what can. If, uh, what, hey, wait a minute. What if sure. Batman were Simon and 
Superman were Garfunkel. Uh, <laughs> I'm waiting for more. I'm trying to I'm trying to start a what if game that always oh, okay. derails the episode. Oh okay, uh, okay, all right. Uh, okay, uh, what if what if uh, Hal Jordan was John Lennon and oh. John Stewart was George Harrison and Kyle Rayner was Paul McCartney and Guy Gardner was Ringo Starr? Oh, Guy. Well, is. obviously. Wait a minute. Hold on. <sighs> Censor myself. Censor myself. Come on, don't be offensive. I was going to say, shouldn't Hal be Paul since he has died so much? Yes. But but then I was going to say, oh wait, but there are actually Beatles who have died. Yes. But then I stopped myself. Um. Yeah. I don't know. This isn't as fruitful as our Seinfeld or Mad Men ones. No, it's not. Let's just quit while we're ahead. Yeah. What if Batman had iPad? Okay. Ah, there, um, there we go. We're back. Yeah. You're back. Uh, so you can find me on Twitter. I am at Brian Needs an F. I'm at VJ underscore O S T R O W S K I. And I'm at SirFox89. And uh, uh, let's let's try and get a, a Twitter game going here. Let's um. Why is everybody for Kirby's 100th birthday? Why does everybody tweet at us their favorite Kirby panel this next week? <laughs> oh, boy. Hashtag it, uh, DC3 Kirby. And, yeah. Mine's a, mine's a Marvel one, though. That's okay. That's okay. We're celebrating all of Kirby's uh, oeuvre. Mine is, um... <laughs> what was that shitty comic in the early 90s? <laughs> Tops Comics? Yeah, mine's a Tops Comics panel, so there we go. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I'm all about... I figure, just by talking about this, the DC3 cast is doing more for Kirby's birthday than Marvel is. Ooh. So, I think I know what mine is. Sick burn, Brian. It's true, though. DC is pulling out all the stops for Kirby's birthday. No, I know. You're right. I mine is the uh, the one with Dark Side sitting on a couch. That's great. That's... That is great. Yeah. <laughs> it is known to me that you are that you rated Apocalypse. If if they don't do that in uh, there it is. If they don't do that in the the DC extended universe, uh, it'd be a huge missed opportunity. Agreed. Oh, I thought about something. Let's end on let's end on this note. Okay. Uh, you know the whole Superman Henry Cavill mustache fiasco. Yes. Mustache. Joss, Joss Whedon, who I'm already extremely skeptical of, if if he is not a big enough comic nerd to take the opportunity to have Henry Cavill shave his mustache using his laser vision into a mirror, <sighs> then he is not worth his weight in whatever he's being paid. That Imagine that. Imagine how, like, awesome that would be. Grabs a little mirror, digitally shaves his mustache off. If you don't do it, you're dead to me, Josh. You're on to something. Good night, folks. Uh, the king of desserts is Bibbo. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
Good night. <laughs>